As always, it's a privilege to open God's word with you. Um, Lane riffed on me in the first service that um, it's raining this morning, so it must mean that I'm leading something. Uh, so uh, I take that as a compliment, the unpredictable nature of student ministry, maybe I, the chaos, maybe I'm just a fit for it. So I'll embrace a bit of that stereotype this morning. Um, so, But as you... Um, Turn to Matthew chapter 1, if you would. That's where we're going to be this morning in our text. Um, I want to consider this, this with you this morning. Is, um, if there's ever a, uh, a time during the year where I begin to wonder what is the good news of the incarnation, it's during Christmas, um, that what is it that makes Christmas so special in the sense of the we believe the good news of the gospel to be true in every respect, that Jesus has come, that he's, he died for us, that he was raised for us, that he was ascended on high victorious in his resurrection, and he's coming again for all who would hope and believe in him. But I feel that there's probably an area that I would be the weakest on personally would be my understanding of why the good news of the gospel of the coming of Jesus in the incarnation is true. And so this is where I want to... I uh, kind of pose this question is, do you believe the incarnation to be good news? And why is that? And I hope that today we can explore this together and savor this good news that Jesus has come and united himself to us in every way. Um, again, I told you I was going to embrace a bit of the stereotype in uh, being a youth pastor. And so I'm going to open up with an illustration of, that is a toilet commercial. So yes. Um, so uh, this time of year, there is, uh, there's a number of holiday commercials. A lot of them are centered around like the family dynamics that happen around Christmas. And uh, the American Standard self-cleaning toilet does just that, okay? So again, what it pictures is, uh, and that for whatever reason, this one sticks out to me. I don't know why this season. But what happens in this commercial is we see an exhausted couple that plops down on the couch um, seemingly after corralling their kids for some time. Um, they look disheveled, their hair's in a mess, um, just kind of ill-kept, unkept everywhere, their toys scattered around. Some of you already know this, this experience already. And they just kind of start to relax and they hear a car door shut. And the husband goes to the window and looks out the window and wide-eyed say, says to his wife, it's your parents. And I'm sure no husband in here has made a similar response to that like that. But, uh, but so the rush begins and they tear through the house in a torrent. They button everything up, shoving everything into every corner or drawer or closet they can come across. And then there's even a scene where the husband is bawling up the kitchen tablecloth and, and shoving everything in there and throwing it into the, the oven, which kind of begs the question, do you ever use the oven? And so, uh, so just before uh, the, the kind of smug looking in-laws come to the door. And so they kind of keep up appearances uh, and kind of keep everything, all the remnants of the mess into all of these, these different areas. Uh, to keep up the appearances before the, these smug kind of in-laws. So I think while this is just like a comical uh, commercial that expresses a lot of holiday things that we can uh, relate to in some ways, I think oftentimes it also is an illustration of how it's easy to view this season in light of the rest of our life. 
And unfortunately so, in my case as well, uh, how it's easy to view God in relation to our day-to-day physical lives. And I'll explain what I mean by that here shortly. See, I think it's all too easy for us to view our lives and the way we, they connect to our faith in a similar light. We've always kind of been prone in Christianity to separate our lives into neat little categories, um, the two favorites being the secular and the sacred. Um, and somehow the mundane kind of common physical realities of our life must be shoved aside uh, to keep appearance and make ways for spiritual things. And I could think there's perhaps maybe no greater time where this is probably the case than around this season of life. We shove the realities into January and let 2018 take care of them. Or perhaps Sunday gets disconnected from the rest of the week as we just kind of come and just zone out look to Jesus and let everything be to return to it. But then also I found for me personally, it's often easy to view God as the in-laws. That he might perhaps in our view be smug or even might be indifferent to the everyday conditions of our humanity. And yet this is where the incarnation breaks in. As I want to remind us this morning, as I remind my own heart, that today that we celebrate the good news of the incarnation at Christmas because this is a message to the contrary. It's why the incarnation is good news to us. That God has come to inhabit and enliven every part of our lives and every part of our humanity. And so here's the main thing I want us to focus on this morning is the birth of Jesus confirms to us that God has come to live for us. God has come to live for us. And what I'm laboring for and what I believe this doctrine and the, and the text that we're going to look at here shortly is laboring for in many ways is that the incarnation being God coming to us in the flesh, in the person of Jesus, okay, that we have the hope of all of life restored, That in the incarnation, God has not merely come to be with us, as glorious of a truth as that would be, but has come to live for us in every way. And so if you would, let's look at at Matthew's gospel account here in Matthew chapter 1 of the birth of Jesus, beginning in verse 18, and then it runs all the way through the end of the chapter in verse 25. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother married had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. 
And he took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, we have here in Matthew's account um, Joseph's viewpoint of um, the birth narrative. Luke records for us Mary's narrative, but here we have Joseph's narrative. And what we have just in the setup of the birth of Jesus, we have a a ton just in those backgrounds that I think teach us a lot about what the incarnation means. Mary and Joseph are betrothed, we are told, um, and they're betrothed to be married. And betrothal in the ancient times and biblical days would have been much like our engagement, yet it was a legally binding status. Notice that he actually considered in verse 18 to divorce her, or 19 rather, to divorce her quietly. So this was not like our engagement, but actually carried with it a legal status. It it would serve as a pledge to marriage. So Mary suddenly gets pregnant, even though they've yet to uh, join together marital unity or to live together or any of those. She's actually declared to still be a virgin here, yet somehow she gets pregnant. And so she suddenly gets pregnant, and now the child's obviously not his. And so he faces something that would have been of great shame. And he also faced something that would have been a serious offense in those days and would carry, even though it was still, again, they're not yet married, it still carried the legal status. It would have been worthy of death. And yet Joseph shows himself to be a just man here, and seeks to break the betrothal in secret in order to not do, uh, bring upon her any shame. Now say all that just to look at this. Look at verse 20. Before the Lord appears to him, it says, Joseph was considering all of these things. And that language there is unique to this passage of Scripture, and it gives the idea of a turmoil of the heart. There's this thinking, uh, this emotional storm within as he considered these things to himself. So can you imagine the type of confusion and possible pain and shame might have gone into this scenario? What might have gone into this personal deliberation that he has in this moment? before the word of the Lord comes. And I think if the application is, is in one way here. I've had several conversations, just even with some of you in our congregation, of this idea of how, how strange it is that the things that we are often not mindful of in our lives, we suddenly become mindful of when there's a problem. Uh, pain is one of these for us. Pain has a way of being an indicator that something is off that otherwise we might be oblivious to. If we were to continue in this without the pain, then it might actually cause greater damage. And so one, I, often I've found that the things of life that we are made to be mindful of, and I think this is what this text is in some ways getting at as well, the areas are the very areas that God is bringing to light to the surface that he might manifest a redeeming work to directly. So the thing that might be plaguing you the most might very well be the thing that God is wanting to bring redemption closest in. And often God does the work of gracious redemption in us When that happens, oftentimes things get shaken up. 
Notice the narrative. We've got a betrothed couple. Everything's nice and orderly. They're getting ready to, you know, the happily ever after kind of thing that you're typically acquainted with. And yet this disruption and confusion comes in. Things get shaken up. The orderly suddenly becomes disorderly. And if we consider, like Joseph, it can be disorienting at times. And when possible confusion and perhaps pain and shame come to bear. But what I'm noticing here in in my life and what I'm noticing here in the text is, is that I believe that divinely allowed disruption is often where God shows himself to be best. Usually God shows himself to be best in those moments. And the incarnation is one of those instances. The incarnation comes to us in a very disruptive, very messy, but glorious way, just like the redemption that it brings with it. And so this morning, uh, out of Matthew chapter 1, I'm going to give you four principles of confirmation uh, from this text that the incarnation is. Four Four principles of, that the incarnation confirms how God has come to live with us and live for us. And the first one is this, that the incarnation is confirmation that God joins with us in all things. That God is joined with us in all things. The one born of the virgin is none other than God with us, Emmanuel. We see this already in verse 23. And as a man, God has joined with us in our humanity in every way. And so we rightly make much of the death of Jesus and the atoning work of Jesus in his death. But let us not, especially in a season like this, forget that Jesus also came to live for us. And that's good news as well. That's the good news that I want to savor this season, and I labor that we would all savor this season. And here's what the incarnation shows us. It shows us that God is not indifferent to our lives or the physical world. That the God who is above space and time has come to inhabit space and time, and therefore bring meaning to it. And value to it. And so God inhabits what you and I would often find easiest for us to overlook. God inhabits the things that would be oftentimes easy for us to view as trite and perhaps even meaningless things. And as one author writes, God actually in the incarnation hangs out in the trivial. And so the eternal creator has not only declared the world valuable in his creation, but also, that would be enough, but he has forever linked himself to it in the incarnation. God has united himself to everything fundamental to humanity, yet without sin. So this makes Jesus... The ultimate human. He makes, he actually is the true humanity come to be with us. That God has not only come to declare a spiritual state to us, but has come in order that we might walk in true humanity complete. And so 
This thus makes Christianity what some would call the true humanism. J.I. Packer and Thomas Howard write in their book, Christianity, the true humanism this way. God stands before us a perfect man, the one totally human being that history has ever known. God incarnate modeling the perfect human life and therefore making it possible for sinful men and women to start living it. This is the good news of the incarnation, that Jesus has walked in perfect humanity that we might have a complete humanity. So the gospel comes to us first in that God's not called us to make our way up to him to declare our worth or our value in the efforts of our everyday lives, but he has come down and inhabited them to declare them valuable, but not just that, but to liberate them from sin. The coming of Jesus is the message of a union of our whole selves with a loving God. So God, ha- so the, the incarnation confirms first to us that God joins with us in all things. Secondly, the incarnation confirms to us that God sympathizes with us in all things. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16 put it this way. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Friends, in his divinity, Jesus is more aware of our faults and our failures and those would-be things that will be revealed to us about ourselves than we are. And yet in his humanity, he walks through us as our through those as our forerunner in every experience of life having gone before us in order to declare the work finished by his grace. He has gone through everything common to man that he might fill it and redeem it. And so the God of the Bible who comes to us in the person of Jesus sympathizes with our every weakness because he is joined with us in every human experience. The Incarnation is one of the most maligned doctrines, actually, in the early church uh, history. Much of the New Testament writers are actually writing to confront and respond to one of the earliest deviations from orthodoxy. And it was founded on the belief that Christ did not come in the flesh. And the reason this was difficult for them in this time was because Greek thought actually believed that all matter was evil. And if all matter was evil, then most especially so would be flesh. So God, it would be an offense, an affront to his holiness that God would join with matter and flesh. So God who is spirit would never in their mind join himself to such things. But as the early Christians noted, only what God has assumed can be redeemed. Only that which he occupies can he redeem. So you can imagine the scandalous and powerful nature of the words of 1 John, 
chapter 1. John being the apostle whom Jesus loved, who walked with Jesus, who, who in his gospel account calls us to believe in Jesus, that we might have life in him. He says this, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, this life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and we proclaim it to you as eternal life. John is saying, I'm not declaring to you some amorphic Jesus, some spiritualized thing that just came to give some kind of secret knowledge. I'm declaring that this is a real person that we've touched and seen, and he is the hope of glory and life in you. And you see, the early church, was in, what they were encountering was a mistranslation of the gospel message. That mistranslation was this understanding that of what was needed was some sort of secret knowledge from God for, for self-empowerment. If they could only acquire this secret knowledge, then everything else would kind of fit into place. And so this message attempted to offer a savior without the incarnation. A Christ spirit who gave knowledge instead of calling to faith. And so I give you all this to say this is not too far of a foreign concept for us in the modern church, right? We come to church, we open our Bibles, Perhaps we go to a Bible study or a community group for some sort of special insight often, a dispensing of a secret knowledge, a searching for that last missing piece that if we could gather it, that habit would stop, our marriages would, would suddenly be better. If we could just get that little bit of advice that would fix that one thing, then everything else would be fine. We would be better able to run our daily lives. And yet what we have before us is this view sees the Christian message as supplemental, not transformational. The gospel is not just some news to come and supplement some missing piece of our life. It transforms and undergirds all of our life. And so friends, if you're here and your Christianity is bound up in a search for that one little bit of knowledge that you might better run this better or might better do this better, the, that message will never come to you because the message is this, surrender to this Jesus who's come to fill all of your life and transform it to the othermost. So solidarity is a highly sought-after thing. It's a cultural thread right now in a lot of ways in our day. Um, there are affinity groups that are built upon this idea of solidarity. Parents of certain kids relating to one another in the age stage group, sports fan followings, um, you know, whether it be like the misfortunes of the Chiefs that everybody's just, you know, joining in. I have no idea. I don't follow pro football, but I know they were up here and then they are kind of all over the place. Common interests, career experiences, all of these things, whatever they may be, there is a yearning to be recognized 
and to be joined in commonality. This is the idea of solidarity. But in the incarnation, God joins with us in this union of commonality, and he is able to sympathize. What we have in the incarnation is God's redeeming solidarity in the face of Jesus. And so the incarnation is our best gift because it is good news that God has subjected himself to every one of our human experiences. That he has subjected himself to the broken and frayed areas of our humanity, not just to sympathize, but to be our help in our time of need. Third, the incarnation is confirmation that God speaks to all things. God speaks to all things. The Apostle John shows us in chapter 1 of his gospel account that while the law came through Moses, he says grace and truth came through Jesus. So the incarnation of Jesus links the word of God to every part of our human experience and every bit of our humanity to speak with clarity and authority. The word of God has inhabited that. Truth is now directly applied to every human scenario as he embodies perfect humanity to us in harmony with his Father's design. So what does this mean for us? It means that we are not left to pick and choose which one of God's area of God's word concerns us, is relevant to us, or applies to us today. Because God's MO is to form us inwardly in the renewal of our character into the image of his word, his son. To align your character with the truth of his word. So the word incarnate shows us that all of it applies to all of us. And so if you want a sign God cares or has a relevant word for wherever you might be, you need look no further than this sign. To you is born in the city of David a Savior, and his name is Emmanuel. If you're familiar with Octavia Spencer's character in the movie The Help, um, there's a joke in our house that the way I use Vicks Vapor Rub is very much like the way um, this character uses Crisco in the movie. And so this is especially true during the holiday season, or the cold season, rather, in our house. So if you got sore muscles, Vicks Vapo. If you got a rattly cough, Vicks Vapo. If you got a kid who can't sleep during the night, just rub some on their feet and they'll fall right to sleep kind of thing. You know, this is the thing about Vicks VapoRub, and there are all kind of other rumors about stretch marks, and somebody told me a few other ones at the end of last service, but I won't get into all that. But its treatment is being, it's a topical treatment. And what that means is it's directly applied to the area on which it's treated. Okay. And so I think this is a fitting metaphor for the incarnation because this is what this means. The incarnation is grace-filled redemption that is topically applied to our lives. 
and not by fiat. It's not some distantly applied, spoken at a distance, imposed upon us, but God has entered with and gone before us. He inhabits our life. He goes with us. And so he doesn't just come to preserve our life, to further our interests, but to redeem every bit of it. And our life and our character by joining himself to us in all of our humanity. So the incarnation confirms to us that God speaks to all things as well. But lastly, the incarnation confirmation that God fills all things. That God will fill all things. The scriptures use this language of feeling, filling all things. In Ephesians chapter 4, the apostle Paul says this, he who descended is the one who also ascended. So he's linking the incarnation from the resurrection ascension far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So the Greek word used here for fill carries the idea of completion and making perfect. Literally, to overfill or with supreme fulfillment. And so for me, the image that kind of comes to mind when I think about this is like this idea of like a large um, inflatable you know, I'm a youth pastor, so they got to think simple, right? So large inflatable. The beginning of this year, we had our ministry kickoff. We had this like 1,200-pound big inflatable um, volleyball court, right? And so this image comes to mind when I think of this. It's as if our world and every part of it, every role of our life, every station we may occupy, it's as if it's a tributary to this large inflatable that cannot fill itself Because it didn't create itself, it didn't animate itself. So it can't fill itself with substance and meaning. And so if you're a student, this is the message I yearn for you to learn and grasp more than anything else. And that is this, that Christ alone fills your identity. Because he's come to fill all things. So the choice before us is this, you can be full of yourself or you can be full of Christ. But one thing I've learned by experience is I don't have the lung capacity to enliven the world I inhabit. But I know the one who does, and his name is Jesus. You see, Emmanuel also bears another name in verse 21, and that is the name of Jesus, which means God is salvation. And so the same Jesus who took upon himself full humanity is risen and ascended where he now lives in glory for the salvation of his own. Christ has joined with humanity for the renewal of humanity. Don't forget this. Christ, think about this for a minute. There is a literal human being seated at the right hand of power with the Father. Not some amorphic, defineless being that is somehow divorced from our everyday life. No, it is a full human. And therefore, if this is a reality, then anything we share in common with that must have meaning and substance. 
And so think for, that, for a minute that in Christ, divine substance is tapped for the feeling and renewing of all things. And so every space you and I inhabit as followers of Jesus becomes a space that's meant to be filled with gospel renewal. So the way we parent our kids, the way we go to our job, the way we are in our schools and on our teams and all of these things become tributaries, yes, even conduits of that renewal flowing through us. And like a campfire the morning after it dwindles, in Christ the scattered glowing embers of the image of God in humanity are rekindled into a full flame. And so here's the application for us. The measure of our understanding of the dawning of redemption that comes in the incarnation is how much we view it speaks to those areas of our life that we are prone to view as monotonous, those habits of our life, those secrets, those perhaps even the skeletons in our closet, the places of our life that we would rather forget and ignore, where cobwebs linger in the concealed dark and callous places of our humanity. Those are the very things that Jesus has come to unite himself to that he might bring full renewal. And so, in closing, the late 19th century, early 20th century theologian B.B. Warfield asked the question, why did Jesus come to earth? And listen to his answer. He says it this way. He says, not merely to prepare salvation, to open a pathway to salvation, to remove the obstacles in the way of salvation, to proclaim as a teacher a way of salvation, to introduce as ruler conditions of life in which clean living become for the first time possible, to bring motives to holy action to bear upon us, to break down our enmity with God by exhibition of his seeking love, to manifest to us what sin is in the sight of God and how he will visit us with it will he will visit us visit it with displeasure all of these things he undoubtedly does he says but all of these things together touch but the circumference the outer edges of his work to men for that which that for that we must penetrate deeper and say with the early primitive church that this it's a faithful saying commended to us by the apostle that Christ Jesus came to save sinners. You see, Christ has joined himself with our humanity to fully renew us in every way for those who would hope in him by faith. And so what we savor and celebrate this Christmas season is that God doesn't just join with us in solidarity, but for salvation. He's not offering us an acknowledgement, a nod of sympathy, a respite, or an escape from our world to push aside and deal with it in January if we're tempted to do so. But he's entered in that we might have full redemption and restoration completely. And so as the worship team returns, the birth of Jesus confirms to us in the incarnation, that Jesus has come to live for us, friends, in every way. And that's good news. That Emmanuel has come not just to dwell and live with us, but to live for us in every way for those who would hope in him.
by faith. And if this is true, we are freed and we're beckoned by him by faith to truly live. Indeed, will you pray with me?